Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. If you happen to be at the Latitude 38 crew party last week at the San Francisco Yacht Club, you may have wandered down to the dock and seen Esprit, the beautiful Peterson 46 owned by Quincy and Mitchell, who run QM Travels. They sailed Esprit over from Berkeley, their home port, for the event. QM Travels sponsors this podcast. They also provide exceptional charter experiences. Quincy and Mitchell are skilled sailors. Mitchell's a certified sailing instructor, and he's got years of experience teaching all over the place, including at OCSC Sailing School, which is featured in this week's episode. When you go sailing with Quincy and Mitchell, you not only get a wonderful sailing experience, but you will eat well. Quincy is a certified nutritionist who creates holistic, healthy meals. So you can sail with QM Travels for a day, a weekend, or an or offshore passage. You won't be disappointed. They'll be in the Bay until September. Then they're headed to Southern California and Mexico. And also this spring, they're offering sailing adventures in the Caribbean. And then in June, they're sailing in the line islands of the Pacific on a 72-footer. You should join them for that. Visit qmtravels.com to see their schedule or follow them on Instagram at qmtravels. So I apologize that this episode is a little late, but since I posted the last interview, my boat arrived at the Berkeley Marine Center on a truck, and I've been busy getting her ready to launch, painting the bottom, replacing the standing rigging, putting back the radar arch, doing a lot of work that needs to be done, as is always the case with a boat. Anyway, this week, I talked to Rich Jepson, who's an owner and operator and CEO at OCSC Sailing School in Berkeley for more than 30 years. He's the vice president of U.S. Sailing, and in 2017, Rich received the Timothy Alar Award for his outstanding contributions to the advancement of sailor education in the United States. Rich and I had a wide-ranging conversation about everything from making sailing more accessible to what he's learned from being the man overboard more than once. Enjoy. Rich, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm excited for this conversation, and I'm excited to be having this conversation in such a gorgeous setting. We've got a beautiful day here. We're looking out over San Francisco Bay. You want to tell us where we are? Uh, We're at St. Francis Yacht Club. Um, uh, Yacht Club I've belonged to since 1987, and uh, uh, while I did most of my career in public access sailing, uh, it's a real joy as a professional sailor to get to enjoy one of the best yacht clubs in the world. Yeah, yeah. I have to admit, I've only stepped foot into this yacht club uh, once or twice, so um, it it is not shabby. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's let's go back. You've been involved in sailing in so many ways, in so many capacities, um, for a long time, and have influenced, had an influence on so many sailors. But I'm curious to hear how you got the bug. Uh, We were a family of sailors. Um, We were a 
it really my grandfather and my father um, uh, were um, uh, boat owners uh, 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 in Massachusetts. Um, they were self-taught, and uh, I think because they were, uh, my grandfather was off the boat Danish, he thought, you know, I'm Danish, so I must know how to sail. <laughs> um, it's just in the blood, huh? Just in, in the, the blood. Uh, 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 they were, you know, sort of average American sailors. They uh, were careful when they went out. They really didn't understand enough about rules and uh, 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 rules of the road, safety regulations. Um, and I, uh, uh, so I was brought up in that environment where it was sort of a hard scrabble, you know, lower middle class existence where everything that didn't go into the home mortgage went into the boat. And this was day sailing? What was Yeah, we, we did some, you know, we, we had a summer family sail. We'd take our, our 10-year-old Bristol 27 weekender with five of us, three kids and mom and dad, uh, uh, from uh, Boston Harbor to... Um, through the Cape Cod Canal and out to Nantucket. And so that was our, we did that three three times, three consecutive years uh, when I was sort of just starting to reach my teen years. But I started uh, because I was a Jepson and you were gonna sail if you were a Jepson and my dad would bring me <laughs> to the boat and um, uh, uh, row me out and, and uh, I was five years old and he would drop me in the water without a life jacket and said, if you can stay afloat and I don't have to get you out, then you can come sailing with me. That's a pretty so, good test. Yeah, it took um, four or five dunkings for, for <laughs> me to actually not need to be rescued. But, I bet you uh, remember that well. <laughs> I remember it well. Now you say the, the rules of the ro road weren't strictly followed. Are there incidents that, that make you say that, that you recall, or is that just a... Uh, I, I was ignorant of that until I had to teach sailing myself. So, ah. so it wasn't until I was an adult and, and I got my first uh, teaching gig um, uh, in, in Annapolis, actually, um, that I realized, wow, we didn't know this. My dad never taught me this. <laughs> What's this? <laughs> so I spent a lot of time catching up. And, uh, a and little I, bit of knowledge is a dangerous exactly, thing, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So tell us, how did you get from sailing with the family to, to teaching? Uh, so I, I, I ended up getting to teach because I, was, um, I had uh, run out of money for college, joined the Air Force with the intent to get the GI Bill, um, found the Air Force a little restrictive for me, and um, the combination of being immature and it not being a good fit meant that I got myself in lots of trouble. <laughs> And um, uh, I had a commanding officer who was a sailor, and he took me into his office and said, you're headed down the wrong path. You only got six months left. You know you don't want to re-up. I don't think the Air Force wants you to re-up. <laughs> but here's an ad for a sailing school. I know you're a sailor. Go down and spend the weekends teaching sailing. Try to do something fun so you can stay out of trouble for your last six months. And um, he changed my life. Wow. Uh, so I, I applied for a job at Annapolis Sailing School, the first commercial sailing school in the country. Um, at, at that time, there were others, but it had been around for already 20 years. And um, I spent my weekends um, uh, uh, teaching sailing and weekdays working for the Air Force until I got out. And I took a full-time job, did that for a couple of summers there in Annapolis, and fell in love with teaching. I hadn't realized before that I would enjoy teaching so well. But um, I, I fell in love with it, and 
and uh, I'd always planned to move to California after I got out of the military, and so I got here um, in 1980 and promptly found a teaching job here, teaching sailing. And that was at OCSC, is that correct? Right. I started as an instructor June 15th, 1980. Most Bay Area sailors are probably familiar with OCSC, but for those who aren't, explain to us what it is, and then tell us about its genesis. Um, OCSC is a sailing school and sailing club. Um, It does two things really well. It works very well to introduce people to sailing in a long enough period of time that they have the chance to make it a lifetime passion. Um, We teach them how to sail. We provide social events. um, We provide boats for them to charter. Um, We take them around the world on um, uh, flotilla charters. I'd say about 25% of our members eventually buy a boat, usually averages five to eight years down the road, um, which means they're making you know, much better decisions about buying boats than they would have if they had just taken a lesson and bought a boat. Yeah. Um, it started, um, uh, my involvement started, uh, like I said, June 15th, 1980, uh, but um, early on, the, the fellow who had started it, Anthony Sandberg, saw something special in me, and I found something special about OCSC because uh, what set it apart from Annapolis Sailing School and what I think it still, um, it still sets it apart is that we teach our students like we would teach our children uh, uh, and require real competence before we tell them that they're ready to go out on their own. And it goes back to that dunking in the water. Exactly. And so he and I had conversations, I as an instructor, him as the founder, over the first six months, and every time we'd have a conversation, we'd say, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and so we became best friends, and we became business partners a year later, and you know, 40 years later now, he's still, still at it. I retired five years ago. After 32 years, my math is correct, of, of teaching sailing. Yes. Wow. This is an unfair question, but which do you love more, the sailing or the teaching? Um, as a career, the teaching, you know, I, uh, in fact, when I would hire instructors, um, I, uh, it was always a red flag if when I asked them, why do you want to do this? They said, well, I really love to sail. Mm. Um, so loving sailing is a prerequisite, but loving teaching is absolutely critical. And, and, and if they, uh, the, the people who said, well, you know, I like sailing, but what I really like is seeing the light bulb come on for my student. I thought, oh, you know, mana from heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so and to answer your question, I, I sail for fun and teach as a profession, um, so it's, it's unfair to say that I like one more than the other. Sure. But I wouldn't have chosen this career if it was just sailing. You know, I don't think I would have enjoyed being a, a, just a professional sailor, uh, charter captain or, or, or professional racing sailor, because um, sailing is fun and I enjoy it, but it's an avocation for me. It's, uh, I'm only a professional sailor because I fell in love with teaching people. And you've taught in so many different capacities, uh, small boats, bigger boats, ocean sailing, coastal sailing. Um, talk about the differences. One of our sort of pillars of our strategy was to make sure that we were using the right tool for the job and to, um, again, going back to teaching people like their family, um, advising them what the right tool was rather than having them tell us what they wanted and then 
give it to them. So we mm. saw ourselves more as leaders than as customer service people. We use the J24 in our school um, because it's um, sturdy, it's super popular, there's tons of them around, and it's a flat-bottomed dinghy with a keel. And so it gets us as close to that dinghy training that kids get to have without a boat that might tip over if you make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, we keep our students on that boat for two levels of certification. We're the only school in the country that does that. So they are expert small boat sailors before they ever are introduced to a cruising boat. Why do you feel that that's important? Uh, well, it was a little bit of trial and error because we were young when we started the business. Um, we just had the intent, and it wasn't until we got to practice on our students, you know, like doctors practice, that we started to learn just how much time someone needed on a small boat before they were unconsciously competent. And in order to be a sailor instead of a boat operator, you have to have unconscious competence. Not only confidence, but unconscious competence. And so we found that it took, you know, 60 to 70 hours of training, three students, one instructor on a J24, and at least 10 days of skipper experience before someone really had that combination of confidence and um, unconscious um, competence. Then they move into bigger boats. Now it's just a different platform. Now they're just learning different equipment. Their sailing skills are so ingrained that the process of moving into larger, more complicated boats is very easy. Tell me about some of the more memorable, I won't say students, but interactions you've had in terms of being a teacher on the water. Well, I had one um, uh, uh, which resulted in me uh, getting a, a, another really close friend. About 12 years into our business, um, a fellow shows up with his wife. Turns out that he's a, um, uh, uh, trained as a psychologist, but an expert in um, uh, leadership, you know, how people make decisions personally and in business. And I learned none, none of this until years later, but he um, came to take sailing lessons. And he was a guy from San Diego. He'd surfed as a kid, so he was very comfortable with the water. And he just was one of the most remarkable students, uh, which that in itself was quite interesting. Uh, he spent several years as a member. Um, but he learned so quickly, and he knew so much about how people learn that he became a part-time sailing instructor, not because he needed the money, because he had a thriving consulting business, but just because he loved it. He loved sailing, and he loved teaching. Yeah. Then I found out what he did, and I said, we're at the cusp of needing your expertise in our business, because I'm, I'm sort of flailing around. I'm, a, I'm like self-taught sailors flail around. I'm a self-taught business person. I didn't go to business school, and I need help, and he changed our business. Wow. Yeah, changed the culture. Um, we, we surveyed the hell out of our members and our employees. He ran me through lots of personality profiles to find out, okay, what are your personal strengths and weaknesses? Where do you need to hire for your weaknesses and keep for yourself the stuff that you're strong at? So pardon the pun, but what was the main tack that OCSC made? Many, but, all, but one sticks out. We developed a culture that made it very clear that the environment was for learning, whether it was for staff or students. 
So when staff started to recognize that this was just a, a, a journey of education for them, they were willing to be less defensive. They were willing uh, to, to take risks and make some mistakes, you know, not safety mistakes, but um, uh, uh, be creative in the teaching process uh, without being afraid that they were going to be um, uh, you know, pulled aside and castigated. And um, every time there was a problem, the first thing we said is, okay, what can we learn from this? Uh -huh. And whether, and I used to give these things that the employees playfully called frank and beneficial discussions. And the, <laughs> my first question would be, before we get into how we're going to solve this problem, tell me what you've learned. Retention skyrocketed, our culture in the business skyrocketed, the, the great reviews for instructors that we were getting from our students all improved. It was like a one-way trip to excellence that I never knew could happen. And, and all I had to do was follow the same path that I was asking my students to, which is to get formal training from an expert. This isn't the first time we've had somebody from OCSC on the podcast, and it's really interesting to hear you say that because I've gotten a sense of real connection, loyalty, and pride from the people who work and who have taken lessons at OCSC. Thank you. But you are involved in uh, many aspects of sailing, um, uh, above and beyond OCSC. You're the vice president of U.S. Sailing. Yes. U.S. Sailing is a, a vast organization. Tell us, explain to, to those who might not know U.S. Sailing what its mission is. U.S. Sailing is the national governing body for the sport of sailing in the U.S. Um, it it uh, received that um, obligation through the Ted Stevens Sports Act of 1978, okay. similar to USA Soccer, USA Hockey, um, U.S. Swimming, uh, and so on. So each of those is the is the organizing body, and and a main goal of the NGB, of course, is to administer and develop competitive teams for the Olympics, of course, but it, it has obligations from the grassroots up to the most elite of sailing. So it, it serves um, with rules, it serves with rating rules um, uh, management, it serves with teaching children how to sail, it serves with uh, trying to make the sport more diverse, um, uh, Does that mean then the, the U.S. sailing rules are what's followed by racers out here on the bay when they go right. out? Right, okay. exactly. So, so U.S. sailing used to be an only competitive sailing organization back in the, you know, let's say it started in the 1800s, and it wasn't until the 19, um, late 1980s that it really embraced the entire sport. And that was uh, an outgrowth of it becoming selected as the national governing body by the uh, by Congress. And then, is there an international body over that? I mean, there must be yes. countries that have their own sailing. All countries have all, all countries who participate in sailing um, have their own um, national organizations. Uh, um, uh, uh, yachting Canada, um, uh, uh, Australia's uh, Australian Yachting Federation. Um, Royal Yachting Association in Great Britain. Yes, so all the countries do, and they all uh, work under the auspices and uh, represent themselves at World Sailing, um, which happens to be based in England. Um, and it, uh, 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 is, it manages the entire sport of sailing worldwide um, for the Olympics. Okay. And I, I want to talk about more what you're doing with USA Sailing, but 
while we're on racing, mm-hmm. I wanted to to touch on the fact that you started racing seriously in 1985 um, and built a crew out of OCSC students. Yes. Tell me a bit about that. You hadn't done much racing before then? <clears throat> no, I am uh, strictly a cruising sailor. Um, I'd been invited to crew a couple of times here and there as a, as a teen, uh, but, um, but uh, uh, I was introduced to racing um, here on the bay by uh, the same guy who sponsored me for membership here, a guy named Don Trask, who sold J24s back okay. in the day. He's since retired to North Carolina. And, um, and so sailing with him, and he was one of the best sailors on the bay uh, his entire life here. Um, so it was a completely different experience for me. You know, but most of my sailing had been with my dad who you know, was trying to figure it out as he went along. And now I was on this boat with a guy who was able to do magical things with the J-24. So I said, gosh, this, I, I'd always sort of been leery of racers because it just seemed like they had a narrow set of skills. They weren't true seamen. They didn't have great seamanship skills or navigation skills. No, this guy had all of it. Um, uh, a really well thought of uh, guy in the Bay and, um, and a very successful business guy. So at any rate, he turned me on to it. I got another crew job um, with another boat that was I could be more regular, and very shortly I built a collaboration with graduates of my school, one of whom had bought a J24 and put uh, it in our program. Okay. So he owned the boat, I drove it, and he he and three other graduates were um, our crew. So of course we had a pretty rough time the first couple of years sure. as we all figured stuff out because it really was, even though I was a lifelong sailor, it was the blind leading the blind yeah. from a racing standpoint. Um, but we eventually got good enough that we were able to win our season championship, which is our, you know, our small claim to fame. But I think it showed that, that following those same rules, that this is a learning process. We're here to learn. We're here to get better. We're not here necessarily to win. Let's just continually get better. And, um, and uh, uh, it kept a very, you know, peaceful, comfortable um, uh, atmosphere on the boat, you know, even when things were um, tense or high stakes. Does OCSC now have a racing program of any sort? Uh, it, 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 a small one. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we do, we take folks out on the beer cans on Friday nights at Berkeley and, and do that. And we teach, we teach performance sailing. So we teach people how to make the boat go fast because yeah. there's joy in that, even if you're not sailing against somebody else. It's uh, interesting as I talk to people here in the Bay Area about how they've learned to sail. So much of it is um, taking classes and then and then jumping, hopping on a boat for races and, and learning that way. There, that mm-hmm. is a very accessible way here right. Right. in San Francisco. Yes. So they're, they're in some ways they're complementary mm-hmm. experiences. I, I totally agree. I think um, uh, um, uh, uh, we have a lot of members here who started out as OCSC um, students. Um, and, and, you know, it's, uh, it may, may not be fair to say it, but... Um, I hear time and time again from St. Francis members, colleagues of mine, friends of mine who just say, you know, um, if I hear someone's been trained there, then I know there's something I can depend on. Hmm. So I can take them and put them on my boat. I know what they know. I know what they don't know. It means that a lot of uh, people get introduced to racing through St. Francis members and end up becoming members themselves. So So put it on your sailing resume. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, one of the things I'm really excited to talk to you about 
is the work that you're doing with U.S. Sailing on the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Um, tell us about that work and what the aim is. I have a dual aim. Being a liberal Californian, I'd like to see equity in all things. Sailing is quite male, white male dominated um, still. Mm -hmm. um, we've made great strides, I'd say, in the last 10 years with gender. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot more women sailing. We have five women board members at U.S. Sailing right now. Um, in fact, a female president, only the second female president in history. Uh, but we still have a long way to go. Women are 51% of the population, and they make up, you know, 10% of the sailors. Mm -hmm. so, so that's a big thing. We're virtually unrepresented in other ethnicities besides uh, Caucasian. So yeah. uh, whether it's African-American, Asian, Latino, it's a very white sport. That sticks in my craw for ethically and morally. But really my, my motivation and my responsibility to U.S. sailing is if we're to become more diverse, how can we do well by doing good? Mm -hmm. So if we just were to pass a magic wand over sailing and suddenly sailing's demographics uh, mirrored America's demographics, we'd have you know, 150,000 members. Right now we have 46. There's a huge market out there that, that sailing isn't touching. And uh, it's not so much U.S. sailing membership. That's sort of a mechanism to try and get my colleagues' attention. Um, uh, but it's more about sailing. And um, there are huge structural, cultural, um, discriminatory obstacles that will need to be broken down over decades. Um, but um, the reason why nothing's, very little has been done is because no one's ready for a decades-long initiative. So I have to figure out how to set something up that will survive multiple sets of volunteers so that it becomes a continual process of diversifying the sport so that um, uh, we, we are more than just remaining available. We're reaching out, we're m marketing to, we're aggressively welcoming women and ethnic minorities as well as disabled people, as well as returning vets. We found that there's a whole new market of returning vets with brain and limb injuries that can be served, that in sailing can serve them as well or better than a lot of the other Paralympic sports like uh, skiing or wheelchair basketball or mm. whatever else. So, but we need to have the will and we need to see the goal, you know, uh, whether it's a selfish goal or a moral goal, we need to see the goal in order to um, execute. Yeah. I think most would agree with you and U.S. Sailing now that a more diverse program means a stronger program, means a larger program. What are some of the tactical efforts underway to actually put that into place? At the DNI committee at U.S. Sailing, um, we have a, a set of initiatives, and um, since we just now um, are, are close to our one-year anniversary <laughs> as a committee, we're starting with trying to, to take low-hanging fruit and have some public successes so that we can um, first build a, a, a picture in the sailing leadership's eye. Mm. And that's not just U.S. sailing leadership, but, you know, St. Francis Yacht Club Board of Directors and Commodore, uh, you know, the myriad of other local sailing organizations that are around the bay, getting them excited about the idea 
that let's pay attention to this. Let's not just hope it happens. Let's mm -hmm. pay attention. Let's see how we can be a part of it. So we are collaborating with a couple of organizations short term. Um, one is Hudson River Community Sailing back in New York. Um, they have a very robust public outreach program. They've got um, their demographics in their membership and in their students is not quite to where the demographics of New York City are, mm -hmm. but they're a lot closer than the organization as a whole. So th they're a model, but also a partner. And uh, we've done things called Sailing for Scholars in which we're, uh, it's a part fundraiser and part um, introduction to sailing for inner city kids with the goal of not just giving them a boat ride for a day, which has historically been the outreach that programs have done, but to try to capture them long enough, days, if not weeks, so they have a chance to build a relationship with something that is totally foreign to their yeah. demographic. Yeah. And, and so they, we can't do that in a series of single-day boat rides. It has to be teach them, immerse them, hang on to them until they catch fire. And um, uh, uh, that's, that, that's, not, that's more strategic than tactical, but what we're doing at Hudson River is, is very tactical. I had an interesting conversation on the podcast with Travis Lund mm. of Treasure Island, Treasure Island Sail Sailing, Sailing Center. Center. Right? Yeah. And he was very excited about the uh, new partnership with U.S. Sailing that I'd love to hear you mm. talk about. Right. And also, um, I think we talked about some... Um, partnership with St. Francis yes. uh, supporting Treasure Island. So if you want right. to talk about those. Yes. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, it's sort of opposite ends of the same, um, uh, of the sport. Uh, the, the first one is um, uh, there's a, a wealthy guy, Tom Siebel of Siebel Systems, founder of Siebel Systems, um, who is a sailor, owns a big, big racing yacht, as you would imagine, someone with that much money. Um, who came to U.S. Sailing um, several years ago, and he said, I want to start developing a plan to make sailing available for more than just rich white kids. And, um, and he comes from a racing background, so this is a racing program, but we are sneaking into it um, all of the uh, uh, educational principles of um, resilience and um, teamwork and leadership to try and make kids fall in love with sailing and also at the same time make them better leaders and better humans. Is that the program at Treasure Island? Siebel Sailors, right. Uh, okay. that, that's one of them. Okay. So it's the, it's the hub for the Bay Area region. The other two uh, satellite programs are my little alma mater um, Alameda Community Sailing Center. Okay. And Golden Gate Yacht Club's public access and program. And uh, the Alameda Sailing Center is Cammy Richards, if I have that right? Right. Cammy Richards founded it, and I okay, served the on the board maker. for a few years. Right. Okay. So that's the grassroots part. He provided us $2.5 million to buy boats, to hire coach trainers, national coach trainers, to make sure that if we bring kids in, that they've got the right boat, and it's a more modern boat rather than the legacy boats that most clubs are using. Um, I've seen some pictures of those new boats that were introduced. They're they are very sexy. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. They're fun to sail, too. Uh, so at any rate, that, that's the, the program. That's happening all over the country, Chicago, Baltimore, 
New York, San Francisco. I, I think they're about to start in San Diego. Now, is that money through U.S. sailing? How, what is the, okay. Yes. He said, you guys are the only people who can administer this. So I'm going to give you the money, but here's the contract. This is what I want to happen. So we're obligated to use that money to do specifically the Siebel Sailors Program. Okay. So got it, and that's located at the Treasure Island Sailing Center, right, on Treasure Island. Um, an exciting new hub for sailing because, as well, there's this. Uh, there is the uh, San Francisco Sailing Science Center that's right, exactly planning. So yep. could be a hotbed. That's very there. exciting. Tell me about the partnership that St. Francis has. So um, St. Francis and Treasure Island um, are collaborating on something called the facility for advanced sailing theory. I believe it's, it's FAST is the, um, is the acronym. It's designed to improve international excellence in sailing for our elite sailors. While it will have a lot more varied of a mission than I just described, its main function is to help us do better on the international stage, where we've been, you know, frankly, suffering for um, a few years. Um, ever since the Olympics allowed countries to fund their athletes professionally, and U.S. sailing re uh, really, or really sailing in general, just wasn't set up to create professional Olympic sailors. We went from being the dominant country in the world in sailing to an also-ran. Why is that? For instance, Great Britain, the United Kingdom, funds its athletes with um, the National Lottery. Uh, that's not the only thing the National Lottery does, but they're funded probably, I don't know, 10 to 15 times what we're able to fund our athletes with USOC money and um, private donations. And so, so you know, the script just got flipped on us financially. And we're it's not that, that, that Americans don't – it's not that in America we don't pay athletes uh, – astronomical amounts. W what happened to, to sailing in particular? Um, sailing doesn't, so, so if you look at, at um, swimming, gymnastics, and basketball, we'll just take those three. Yeah. Each of them has a TV and spectator friendliness that leads to millions, if not billions of dollars. Billions in terms of basketball, for instance. Um, sailing has yet to find that niche. It's always been a participant sport more than a spectator sport. Larry Ellison is trying to change that, isn't that, he? It, it, and, and this is one of the reasons why, is he's looking at sailing and saying, done the right way, it can be every bit as compelling as some of these other sports. Why but, is there so much resentment then from sailors in the U.S. sometimes to say, yeah. what, what's he doing? Yeah. Um, well, perceptions vary widely, obviously. Um, I, I'm, I, I can't say that I'm a huge fan of how Larry Ellison, you know, operates his business or, uh, you know, personally behaves. Um, but one thing as a professional sailor that I've always believed is that sailing deserves to be seen. It deserves to be popular. And if that requires that something has to be ginned up or contrived, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. I, I, I think it, it is it is failing to hurt anyone's enjoyment of sailing. <laughs> I would challenge anybody who is out here and actually watched the, th those amazing catamarans zoom by not uh, to be inspired. I was breathless. 
Yeah. And, and, I, and I've been sailing my whole life. I've, I've sailed on foiling boats. I've been out in rough weather in the ocean. I've had some very absorbing experiences sailing, but as a spectator, I've never seen anything like that. Yeah. That was just amazing. <laughs> it's like watching Formula One on the water. <laughs> it really is. But back to uh, more of our speed <laughs> of sailing right, here. Yes. Um, that's exciting stuff that's happening at Treasure Island in terms of access. And it, I see it happening in a lot of little hotspots around the bay. You mentioned Alameda. I know there's efforts underway in Sausalito to open a community boating right. center. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's going to all be enough? I'd, I'd have to measure us on a curve yeah. or, or grade us on a curve. Um, enough would be sailing became more popular than basketball. So yeah. uh, I, uh, 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 I'll be in the ground before that happens. But what I'm planning to say to the board is if in 20 years we doubled our percentages, just doubled our percentages from a very low percentage of it's probably well under 10% of our uh, of sailors, certainly of US sailing members are other than Caucasian. Um, if we were to make that 20%, you know, we're almost instantly then at, you know, 60,000 members. So the, there's a huge business case for it. All I have to do is co- commit, you know, get a, a nonprofit organization that is 100 years old, so very mature. That train is heavy. It's got a lot of cars, and it's going in one direction <laughs> to just start to turn it a little bit. The Titanic doesn't turn on a dime, It does huh? not, yeah. yeah. But as you said, just because it's going to take us a long time doesn't mean we shouldn't start the journey now. Right. And there will be short-term advantages. We were talking about tactics. If we are constantly making the point that we're trying to attract demographics unattracted in the past, then it's good for our reputation. It, even the people who are already in sailing are going to feel better about it and themselves. And there's just a whole bunch of selfish benefits that accrue that I'm hoping to exploit to get our sport to do the right thing. Hmm. Well, I want to go back. We started the conversation with you talking about being dunked in the water. And I know one of the ways that you teach is that you write. I was reading some of your articles on Scuttlebutt. Mm -hmm. And I came across (laughs) one where you're talking about falling overboard, which is something that we encourage all sailors not Not to to do. do. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about uh, your experiences there. Yeah, well, I've been I've been overboard off of keel boats. I mean, you can hardly sail a dinghy without ending up overboard at yeah. some point uh, every day. But um, <laughs> on, on off of keel boats, um, three times. Once when I was a teen on one of those um, crewing exercises that that I really was unprepared for. Uh-huh. Um, I was on a what's called a one ten, and, and um, a bunch of them back in the Northeast, especially in Massachusetts, and a, a small little ghetto of one tens out in uh, Inverness. Ah. So at any rate, um, I was on the wire um, with the spinnaker up, crewing for this guy who's a very good sailor. I just wasn't prepared because I was inexperienced, and he buried the bow into the wave, and I went all the way forward around the headstay and dunked in the water. <laughs> I'm getting dragged along to oh, lure, and he's laugh. trying desperately to get the boat stopped. It was uh, quite scary, but now yeah. quite hilarious. Mm. Just recently, I was um, on a J-111 uh, on the bay. We were rounding the leeward mark. 
I was helping to get the, uh, a late spinnaker drop in, and uh, we're rounding the mark even as we're pulling the spinnaker in to leeward. Uh, I turned around to leap up onto the weather rail and feet slipped out from under me right under the lifelines and uh, mm. separated from the boat. Not hurt while you were going over. No, the luckily I, I strained a shoulder a little bit because uh -huh. I was trying to hang on. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting enough, the owner of the boat um, was a longtime OCSC member, and I taught him his overboard drill, and he <laughs> executed it <laughs> to perfection. And now, is that what you're thinking when you're bobbing in the water? I sure hope he remembers it, what no, I taught him. I definitely did. <laughs> I said, oh, this will be embarrassing <laughs> if he runs me over or can't get back to me. Um, yeah, uh, in fact, it, uh, the whole thing took 90 seconds, and we kept racing. Mm -hmm. What are the lessons from those experiences? Mm. Wear a life jacket. I had one on, and as soon as I was in the water... I didn't have to worry about my airway. I didn't have to worry about kicking and staying afloat. I could get my wits about me. You know, life jackets are a pain in the neck until they aren't. Uh, I was so pleased that I had it on there. Um, you know, the water's pretty cold. The, the Coast Guard has learned now uh, that hypothermia doesn't get you if you're in cold water. It's um, cold water incapacitation. First thing that happens when you get dunked in the water, cold water unexpectedly, is you have a gasp reflex. Okay. If you don't have a life jacket on, that gap, gasp reflex will take you down because you aspirate a bunch of water. Mm. Now you have no buoyancy in your lungs, and you go down. So it's not the hypothermia. Right, right. That's the, the, it, if 90% of the peep sailors listening to this will go, well, that doesn't sound right. But just you know, Google um, cold water incapacitation and cold water shock, and you'll be surprised at the research. It's uh, quite compelling. So... Uh, we never wore life jackets when I was a kid, and I wore them begrudgingly when it became clear that not having students and instructors in life jackets was just too much of a risk at a sailing school. So early on, I said, okay, we're all wearing them. I know you don't yeah. want to. It was a different time then back in 1980. Yeah. But, boy, I'm sure glad I had mine on when I went overboard. Rich, what haven't we talked about that you'd like to address Another initiative that I'm working on that um, is less about diversity and inclusion, although it has a component, is um, uh, trying to make sailing a lifetime activity for new sailors nowadays, like hmm. it almost always was when I was a kid. So there was never a question in my mind as I was growing up that I'd be sailing for the rest of my life. Now, it wasn't just because uh, I had a particular affinity for it. It just was what we did. We did it as a family. It was a lifestyle. It wasn't a youth activity. It was an adult activity that I, as a youth, got to do. And we've gotten, we've soccerized youth sailing to the huh. point where we're creating a, a small percentage of really talented and well-coached sailors that are doing really well in youth events. But then we've got 85% of the rest of the kids who either tolerate racing because they get to be with their friends sailing or hate racing and drop out of sailing because of racing. Now, it's not because racing is inherently um, improper for kids. Um, uh, you know, USA soccer is doing great. USA hockey is doing great. They're all about competition. There's virtually no non-competitive hockey being played or non-competitive soccer being played, maybe except for six-year-olds. Uh, but <clears throat> sailing's different because it has um, uh, some solitary 
non-social aspects to it, especially for youth sailors and opties. And it's in a much a foreign environment. So, so uh, uh, the fear of the water and the fear of being in a boat and not feeling in control um, uh, is, is unique to sailing when it comes to these youth sports. And um, if we're not introducing the children carefully enough with due regard for how children learn and what their fears are and what turns them on, um, and all we're doing is, is following them around with a safety boat and a bullhorn saying, tack now, um, uh, we're going to burn out a bunch of kids. And we've been burning out a bunch of kids. So what is the pathway then? I mean, there are tons of kids who go and play soccer in college, but then hardly ever touch a ball afterwards. Right. For sailing, if you're going to make it a lifetime sport and they're not going to be on the race circuit, where are they going? And That's how are they getting there? That's a great question. Um, so <clears throat> the difference between sailing and soccer is that um, most people, um, uh, when they age out of soccer, it's because their body just can't take it anymore. They're just getting older. Um, they haven't remained in top shape. Whatever it is, soccer just becomes more and more difficult for them, and they j eventually stop. Uh, so even if you're trying to play post-collegiately, um, th that's going to end very quickly. Um, sailing is different in that regard, but it's still a big commitment. It's expensive. Um, uh, uh, um, lots of things are going on post-high school, post-college mm -hmm. uh, that include mortgages and school debt and kids and marriage. Um, uh, uh, getting, getting your feet under you in your career, whether you're an employee or a business owner, I, all of those things are the same. Life. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so we don't expect that we can keep everybody every minute, but we, we believe that a large percentage of um, youth um, fail to get it into their heads that it's something they could return to, that there's something there, there, when they're ready again. You know, I, when I was in the military, I took three years off of sailing. It was just no opportunities. I was doing other things. Uh, I was over in Korea. They didn't have any sailboats where I was stationed, so I didn't sail. Um, uh, but when I came back, the bug was still there because I'd always thought of it as a lifetime activity. Yeah. Something you just considered that you right. did. And, and part of that is getting youth into different boats. And when I say different, I don't mean changing from one to another, a variety of boats. Like they talk about in athletics, cross-training. You gotta cross-train your brain and your heart with different sailing experiences. You need to have just messing about in boats time. You need to have non-competitive sail training, um, non-competitive seamanship and boat care and navigation, all, all of that stuff so that you're sending the message to them, not only telling them, but showing them by doing that, you're preparing them for a lifetime of sailing, not just, hey, let's see if we can win this youth championship for the Yacht Club next week. Um, uh, uh, that might be a fun thing to do on the way, but, but you know, sailing's more than just, you know, opties and uh, on the city front here. It's so interesting. You're really talking about redefining what sailing means. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think that's a good word, redefining. I believe it used to be that way. Let me ask you about a hurdle that I think may or may not be specific to San Francisco Bay. I, I grew up sailing on the East Coast, as did you. You know when your dad dunked you in the water 
it was probably a hot day. It felt mm-hmm. great. Right. <laughs> um, I honestly, one of my main concerns when we moved out here was taking my daughters out on the San Francisco Bay and turning them off to sailing because it can be cold it's, and it can be miserable. Yeah. Um, is that something, is that a unique challenge here? I mean, there are certainly plenty of sailors who take on that challenge and say, I love it. Yes. But it's not, um, it's a different kind of sailing and different kind of introduction. And, and we, you know, suffer the same challenges in Berkeley. It's, um, you know, it's 15% less windy in Berkeley than it is here in St. Francis. But um, the, the waves are just as big. The water's just as cold. Um, and some people say, I, I, I'm going to stick to tennis. This, yeah. this is just not that much fun. You know, sailing, sailing is never going to be like video games. It's never going to be like watching movies, two things that you can do with very little physical discomfort. Um, but there are things to do that you can do to make sure that that introduction is um, gradual and that they people develop children or adults develop um, comfort on the water before they're asked to be challenged by the water and the wind paying attention to wind limits choosing the right boat just saying you know we're gonna stay ashore today and and wait till the wind dies and maybe tomorrow we'll go um, uh, it's very it's very easy to do from a from a, a model creation standpoint it can be inconvenient because you can't control the wind but um, but we we have wind limits for different classes that we don't send our basic keelboat students out in 20 knots you know, if it's blowing 20 we come in for them for our more advanced students it could be 25 or even 30 knots that we we need them to get that experience but they're at a point where they see it now as a challenge rather than be frightened by it well, I want to thank you, Rich. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Where where do people go if they want to learn more about OCSE or U.S. Sailing? Mm-hmm. OCSE.com is our, um, our website, and our motto is inspire confidence. As I was saying, confidence and unconscious competence are the two critical things to keep people in sailing. If they don't have either of those two things, they're not going to do it. USSailing.org is our national governing body's um, website address. I'll put in a a plug for Alameda Community Sailing, which has only been around for five years, run by one of the best racing sailors on the bay, Cammie Richards, which up until it got its Siebel assignment, which requires some race training, it had zero racing, and it it sold out every one of its five years, all of its summer camps. Well, Cammie's on my list of people to have on the show. Oh, you will love him. Stay tuned, and hopefully... That'll come in the not-too-distant future. But (laughs) thank you for the conversation today, Rich. Thank you. That wraps up this week's show. Thanks again for listening. You can always reach me at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. It's outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next week, smooth sailing.